Okay, so I'm sat here today with Ben Pipes, uh, former Team GB captain for volleyball at the London 2012 Olympics. So obviously also an Olympian at 2012 and the most capped England international as well as former professional volleyball. So thanks for coming on, Ben. It's good to have you here. Uh, you're welcome. So it'd be great to get a bit of um, background information on you on how you came into volleyball, your kind of progression through, etc. Yeah. So give us a little bit of an overview. Um, so I think for this story, I was trying to remember um, three things because I'm, I'm not the most kind of best with my memory. Um, but yeah, the, the first one was always swing ball. Second one was kind of caravan holidays. And then the third one was based around opportunities. So swing ball, I'll take you back to my kind of grandma's garden. So if you could picture me kind of eight, nine years old in my grandma's garden, whole family in the kitchen watching um, cups of tea, chocolate biscuits. Um, and I'd be there in the garden, picking up the ball from the swing ball, desperately trying to hit it, feeling miserably, everybody laughing at me. But then every now and again, I'd get it kind of perfect I'd hit it and I'd be celebrating as the ball whipped around hit me in the back of the head wrapped around my leg I'd kick off I'd throw my racket uh, and it would go on and on and on but looking back now and kind of kind of eventually the career that I had I found it was that swing ball mentality that was why I ended up being good at or good relatively for me um, but I ended up kind of achieving things within my, my own sport um, and stumbling upon volleyball because of that swing ball mentality so loved the challenge wasn't afraid of something different um, and I just chucked myself into loads of different um, sports um, I did that from primary school all the way kind of through into high school I did everything for school netball basketball tennis football rugby cricket um, but I quickly realised there was not going to be David Beckham there was not going to be Johnny Wilkinson there was not going to be Mo Farah um, and as my dad used to love to kind of remind me I was a jack of all trades master of none was exactly how I used to describe it um, but it was it was through that and the a local caravan club that I eventually found volleyball so maybe 14 years old um, the, the local caravan club have put a flyer to the school advertising volleyball um, that flyer has come about because they've come to the end of the summers when they've been playing on the beaches on the sands in the park um, as, as a caravan club and they've decided they don't want to stop. So just because it's the end of the summer, just because they have to go back to Hull, city of culture, but not, <laughs> not, not always the, the brightest place in the world. Um, they've said they don't want to stop, so they've gone back, they've found a local gym, like Hull YPI, concrete floors, dusty kind of place, all the rest of it, and they've set up this club. Um, and one person within that, a guy called Stuart Beagle, said, well, if you're going to set up a club, I'll set up a junior team, a kids team. So everyone's said to Stuart, I'll oh, go for it got some flyers sent them around the local high schools that's the flyer that's landed on my P teacher's desk I've rocked up at lunchtime like sir is there a match on is there a football tennis just basically Ben there's nothing going on go try this took the flyer never seen volleyball never heard of it nobody in my family plays nobody down my street plays um, took the flyer kind of walked in that first day um, and the only way to describe it is that I fell in love like I kind of I often say about failing into volleyball and it's probably true um, I'd always love my athletics always love my football but football was starting to come to a point where you're not going to go anywhere athletics I'd just moved up an age group so I was starting to take a pounding when I was going to kind of events um, I was quite a tall teenager and definitely of the kind of not the steady grower like the kind of growth spurt so I'd have months where I didn't fit my body and I couldn't kind of coordinate myself um, 
so I kind of went into the volleyball and I was actually alright like compared to the other kids around me I could do quite a few of the bits and I could understand the court because of tennis and badminton and that mixture that I'd done and that that swing ball mentality meant I just kept going and maybe above what some of the other kids around me were doing I think the, the only bit that was a bit of a trick within it was even after that first night of playing you kind of you go out of sports hall you're you're happy you found something new you've made some new mates um you've you've kind of tried something for the first time but i quickly realized like opening the doors to the kind of the rest of hull was that volleyball is a nothing sport <laughs> nobody <in> my family <laughs> plays nobody down my street plays we didn't play at school um so there was a kind of a quick decision like do i stick with this like something that i've fallen in love with something that i'm a little bit all right at um, or do I just drop it because it's a nothing sport and nobody's mm-hmm. interested? Um, and from there, I went on a kind of weird and wonderful journey. I found myself in the English setup quite quickly. Um, my coach kind of ID'd me as somebody that should get maybe a, a training spot. So they sent me down to um, Oxford to go train with the English team. They picked me up as kind of maybe maybe there's something to look at. I kept going with them until I was made junior captain of the national team. Um, at 16, my coach said, Ben, don't train once a week in Hull. Come and live in Sheffield, live in my loft, train with the university team, move your A-levels. So at 16, I packed my bag, I left home, I lived in his loft, I trained with the university team, not once a week, but four nights a week, plus a bit of S&C in the morning. Then at 18, having already kind of played for the English senior national team in the World Championships, a um, couple of agents were kind of wanting to help and do you want to take volleyball serious if you're serious you need to get off the island um, so I managed to do that 18 I got offered my first contract from a Spanish club so I don't train four times a week train twice a day six days a week um, and then from there it just snowballed I played professionally for seven years um, English English national team turned into the British national team um, I made every selection I got made captain five years before the games and then you kind of find yourself stood at the Olympics, first ever captain, first ever British team, home games, 15,000 people waiting for you to walk out. Um, and I think it was in that moment, um, kind of looking up to the Polish captain, who's about seven foot two, um, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm six foot eight, so you don't look up very often. Um, and, and you kind of realise that it, it wasn't luck that brought me to that place. It was that accumulation, that adding up of all the little opportunities mm-hmm. um, and kind of starting with that, that swing ball mentality and just chucking myself out there and that I failed more times than anybody at most things but the difference between me and the other people around me was that it just never stopped me like failure was just a part of kind of something you had to go through something you had to maybe suffer every now and again but learn from kind of find, find a bit ownership was big if you make a mistake, you got to own it. Find a bit of humour in it, and then be brave enough to go again is probably the the biggest trick. But yeah, I realised it was that some of the opportunities mm. that brought me there, front of the queue, about to live out every dream I'd ever had. So, Pretty phenomenal story. Yeah, it was it was good. It was good fun as well. <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> a bit travelling at the age of eighteen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cool. So I think there's also a story involving Ryan Giggs. Oh, there? Giggs. Yeah, there was yeah. Um, yeah, I think that was, they were my kind of my three claims, or they are my three claims to fame. Because um, I've, I've worked with kids kind of since retiring and since coming back, and they often, they want to hear those glory stories rather than kind of the old volleyball days. They don't want to hear the stories about failure, they want to hear the stories about no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, So uh, my claims to fame, I've met the Queen, 
Um, I've autographed a baby, so I signed a baby, and I met Ryan Giggs, um, or Bubble Bath is Ryan Giggs. So we were in the village in like the um, the medical centre, mm-hmm. and I've kind of walked in. I've either been with the physio, I'm kind of foam roller, I'm kind of contrast showering, or whatever I was doing um, at the time. But I've gone in to the changing room and hanging up on one of the things is is one of the accreditations so you kind of can't help I think why somebody left their accreditation like the big no-no in the village is don't ever leave your accreditation I've walked past and I'm sure I recognise that face that's Ryan Giggs and I was like oh my god <laughs> Ryan Giggs is in there Ryan Giggs so I'm kind of in the changing room psyching myself up um, to kind of go in there and I kind of peer through the door and he's sat there in like the jacuzzi um, so I kind of walked in I thought right just be cool be cool like you spend your whole time in the village just telling yourself that like you get drugs tested alongside Andy Murray or you walk past um, like the American basketball team like you've got Jess Ennis at breakfast you've got Luke Campbell like just walking through it so you're just constantly kind of trying to keep your cool in front of your heroes kind of thing um, and I walked in and I just casually kind of nodded and said oh you're right." and he was like you're right. and I kind of went in the ice bath bit and I thought right I can't stay in here the whole time and I have to get out and I have to go in the jacuzzi bit um, went in there and then was was chatting to him in there and talking about um, playing for the national team and I think they just played in Wales that same day um, so yeah talking to them yeah it was just just phenomenal to get their kind of idea on it and a really genuine guy really down to earth um, really credited kind of a lot of the Olympic sports which was it was nice like mm. you don't you don't really expect somebody of that profile to even kind of register but just that acknowledgement of he knew how popular football was and yet he was meriting all of the other Olympic sports for mm-hmm. the amount of work we were doing the commitment the the money it cost and so yeah to, to meet him was was really brilliant to hear about how important playing football was to him was nice and then kind of his side of the importance of the Olympics and different sports that involved was yeah just kind of cemented a little bit of mm-hmm. hope in you that yeah <laughs> that, yeah that what you were doing was right so it was good so looking mm. back on your career overall yeah. is there anything you would do differently or anything you would change or would you do everything exactly the same all over again um, so I'd, I'd be scared to change something in case it changed an outcome um, and I think I th- I'm, maybe I don't know to look at it the other way around there was, there was coming back to that idea of failure there was one thing that I would definitely want to happen again um, and that was when I got cut from my first selection because um, that for me was another kind of catalyst for then kicking my career on um, and like if, without being kind of too downbeat it always felt like a failure was that thing yeah. where you did a really kind of really honest reflection of where am I where do I want to go how am I going to get there am I committing enough am I making the right choices so it was in those moments that I did that so I honestly wouldn't want to change anything out of fear of yeah everything not happening like it did and I'm yeah, quite yeah. a believer in that like kind of mm. fear and it, it kind of it goes it goes how it goes um, but the one thing I would definitely not change was, was that selection it was for the juniors um, my brother got selected and I didn't um, and it was like at the time but we were at Hull YPI when we found out after a training session I think it was my mum that had to deliver the message like Carol, <laughs> Carol, brutal yeah. not only you get like, that but it's your mum yeah because the national team coach had passed it on to Carol Gordon who you know well as well um, yeah I think she they passed on the kind of message to my parents and it was then my parents job to kind of explain that my brother's going to France to go play for England and, and you're then, saying, then huh? you're not so, <laughs> um, but it was that, it was again it was that though it was 
yeah, it hit me really hard. It was like the first I'd made the, the Yorkshire team. I'd gone to like England cadets, I'd made all these different things and I'd done well and that was the first one that was a real kind of real cut. Um, to, it was something that I was desperate to do and I'd trained hard and I'd done all the things right. Um, so you kind of then you start reflecting on well what what could I have done differently what should mm. I have done mm. what choices should I have made that were different to the ones I've done so it's funny isn't it like failure is such a massive part of the sporting journey that uh, I think coaches give a lot of credit to you but the athletes don't and it's funny you know looking back you hear these stories of Michael Jordan being cut yourself being cut and you yeah. look back and think coach must have been an idiot it's the greatest <laughs> NBA player of all time but he wasn't the greatest NBA player of all time at that point in time and in fact if you took that away like you said yeah. chances are maybe that that was the impetus he needed to get as far as he did by yeah. himself yeah. so it's interesting that you kind of you, I guess creating that, that failure being important but that kind of essentially a growth mindset is what you're yeah. talking about isn't it yeah yeah and I mean the the kind of sporting landscape is constantly evolving um, and constantly changing but I've always kind of felt in my career you had the you had those people and those moments where it was kind of you were kind of at the top or you looked around and you could see the thousands of people and you could you, you were where you wanted to be and those moments were good for for essentially pushing you along but the bits that would drag you were the bits where somebody would say it wasn't possible or you're stupid for choosing that or yeah. you would have a real kind of hard time on the court and nothing's going right it was it was those moments that acted to almost drag you over the line so the positives and they would they would push you which is good mm-hmm. but to be honest when you're kind of needing to get yourself up and you're needing to face up to a, a, an issue within your performance or a growth you need to make physically or mentally you need somebody to drag you over the line sometimes you need and that for me was those negative kind of I do those in inverted, inverted commas it's like that and those negative experience those bad times were the ones that were dragging you mm. um, and, and yeah that was that was a big thing big fuel so am I am I right in thinking within the context of British volleyball at that point in time it was quite unique to have players like yourself playing playing abroad, were there a lot of players playing abroad? Or were you kind of the only one? No, so we had with the it was the second like instalment of the British national team. So they tried in the past to to set it up, and they did successfully done that, um, with probably a, maybe one or two generations before us. Um, probably the difference this time was the level of funding we received. So the British Federation received performance funding to push the teams of the men, the women, the beach, um, and the sitting on. Um, and then the other thing for, for our team, for the men's line, was that our head coach, Harry Brocken, basically set a very stern line in the sand of, if you're not playing professionally, if you're not playing full-time, then you're not going to be selected for the national team. So at our peak, um, we, we easily had 24 to 30 male players playing some capacity of professional or semi-professional volleyball. And that was because that head coach set a line in the sand of, look, unless you're doing this full-time, yeah. you're not going to be good enough um, mm. for us to kind of to get this Olympic team and for you to make that squad because the biggest thing for us for the Olympics was credibility that that word credibility so yeah. they can look at numbers in the gym so do we jump as high as this team can we push the similar weights can we move as fast you can look at stats like when we play a game do we hit the similar percentages and then we look to target the African countries for could we beat an African nation that would maybe qualify from from the continent so then we've got that kind of a few points where we can argue look we've done that mm. and we can show that we will be credible at the Olympics right. um, so that I think formulate part of the plan for, for our head coach and, and we really bought into that like the players really bought into it we lost some guys really early on 
that were probably bigger talents than than some of the people that we eventually picked up but that volume of training that level of weekly um, competition playing in the leagues and then being able to come together for a three-month four-month period in the summer full-time where it's kind of volleyball is your job mm. like it's your job to to keep fit to watch video to recover then that that was the difference between mm. us then kind of pushing the level past what had potentially previously been done which Mm. It's interesting that you, you kind of mentioned a line in the sand because what I've kind of realised speaking to other people, my, my boss who's been to the Olympics and, and played a really high level of rugby, is basically shifting in standards yeah. and saying this is the standard now and being very open and black and white about it. Do yeah. you think in terms of achieving a, a high level of performance, do you think that is a really an important factor or do you think it's something that kind of people have to set themselves? What do you, what do you think? Uh, you've probably got a you've got probably varying degrees of that for me you need you need strong leadership within that so a good a good a kind of a leader that can manage the people that are involved in the program well mm-hmm. that makes a huge difference um being able to delegate jobs then to assistant coaches SSC, doctors physios but then pulling everybody together to the same message um i think the the idea of the kind of the this is the direction that we want to go in and then being absolutely ruthless in getting that um that that for me was the key and then the other thing is if you want to achieve anything it's got to be buying people have to buy in mm. like because if not you kind of the message gets diluted the direction gets a little bit lost um the commitment and the kind of um that wholehearted commitment to this is this is what we said we're going to do um it's it's really hard to get if somebody's not quite a hundred percent in um, and it only takes one out of 50 people to break that movement down yeah. and it can be the person at the bottom of the chain it can be the person at the top of the chain but the moment there's a bit of a chink or a crack especially in team sport mm. it, it spreads like a virus and then you get little pockets little groups then you get frag- this fragmented and one group want to go this way and they want to do it like this and the other want to go another way so that leadership from the top is is vital their ability to get all of the people to buy in to mm. that same message and then it's it's everybody's role within that to then give their own kind of version of that line in the sand like this is my level this yeah. is my 100 percent. this is me fully committed yeah, yeah. Um, and that might vary there might be some people within that that can't do everything the others can but that doesn't mean say the commitment isn't the same mm. um so i think that's interesting because i remember reading richie mccall's autobiography and he him saying that basically his own personal standards are so high that he knows if he reaches his own standards he'll hit everything else yeah. he doesn't need to worry about the all black standards because his standards are higher than that yeah. and I think it's interesting I'm just thinking of some of the players that I know that I'm working with you know we have our standards and you know those two or three guys never come close to erring on the wrong side because their standards are again another level higher yeah. so they'll be disappointed themselves if, if they let themselves down even if they've reached the standards we've set yeah. because their expectations are that much higher yeah, I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, I mean it's funny. I caught up with one of the guys um, from the team just the other day. It's quite funny for us to have kind of adult conversations now. <laughs> we're kind of retired and not playing, and uh, he's running his own agency in Brazil. Uh, and and Mark was kind of not the opposite to me, but v- much more kind of relaxed and much more um, kind of in his in even in his demeanor. And looking back now, it, it was. The reason that we kind of phone each other now, we've not spoken in let's say a year or two years and it's like we were talking yesterday, mm-hmm. is because we balance each other out. Like 
that that example of kind of going above and beyond and I think that was part of the reason why I was made captain in the first place not because I was the best not because I was the most volleyball smart but because the coach knew if he was going to shift the standard you might as well put the guy that's already doing yeah. like the extras yeah, yeah, anyway yeah. so we'll set that we'll set the tone with that mm-hmm. and then we'll get everybody else to kind of buy in but I think for my career to have lasted longer I would have needed to kind of ease off a little bit or not have to hit those standards kind of so you could maybe arrive mentally in a bit of a better place when in fact like you said there you're, you're stressing out and you're upset because you didn't hit that standard but you didn't need to get to there yeah you needed to get to here yeah so yeah. you're just there's a, there's also a risk in that so and that balance came through and i think through the team and people like mark in the team where we naturally had a rapport because yeah he could see that i would go that way and i could see that he'd maybe go the other way sometimes but we knew that by meeting in the middle we were both hitting the same standard as well yeah. so he could kind of chill me out when it needed to happen and i could kind of rev him up mm-hmm. when it needed to happen and yeah, it's yeah, it's funny, but it's it's true. Um, I think you need that, don't you, in your team? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that's my kind of questions done. I've got a few here that have been submitted by uh, people online. So this one's from well, the next two actually are from Alex Mackley. So the first question he said is, do you, did you have any morning routines or any kind of morning habits while you were an athlete? Uh, yeah, so I don't think anything specific to um, a morning, an afternoon, or a night. Every routine that I set. Um, was around what we were doing on the day. Um, and I always kind of, I always err on the kind of caution on this because you have to be very careful not to just dive into this world and create yeah. a bubble that's so kind of consumed by what you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and the good thing is modern sport is telling us not to do that. Yeah. Um, I think historically it's, it's kind of, it went the other way in the past and maybe in my era, but I would look at when am I training and then I would work back, what time do I need to wake up? What am I doing, right? What do I need to eat? then it would be kind of what time do I need to set off to make sure that I'm an hour early in the gym yeah. or if I've got a meeting with the physio or do I need to report to the coach or um, I had kind of I had kind of silly routines as far as kind of um, making sure that I was ready I was quite I needed to organise I'm a big believer in organising your space and your time so I knew my schedule I'd have my schedule printed up and I'd have it one on the back of my bedroom door I'd have it on the toilet door as well so you you kind of you're just constantly yeah. in contact with those those boxes that need to be filled and those places that you need to get to, um, but other stuff like making sure my kit was in a certain drawer or I had certain things in certain zips in my bag so that I could quickly know do I have that that item. So my wallet would always go in the same pocket in my jacket. Yeah. So I tap my jacket and my wallet's there. I'm yeah. not thinking oh my god where is it where yeah, did I put yeah. it last. I always put it in that pocket. Right. So if I go straight when it isn't there, then it's mm-hmm. I need to look. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other daft things like kind of shoelaces were always a bit of a thing for me it was kind of that mental rehearsal yeah. and I found it creeping into my regular life so <laughs> I couldn't I kind of for the, for the matches I'd be kind of like really take my time and it was kind of I'd start on my feet so yeah. you obviously you get, you get your kit on but then that prep for me was I kind of I sort my laces out and my, it sounds really stupid now but like are my feet comfortable like yeah. I wore mid, mid, mid shoes so I don't want them too tight I don't want my feet to feel funny like yeah. uh, I'd take spare socks if my socks didn't have the right kind of feeling and I'd sock them out because it was kind of that I would that was the start of my day was I start my feet and I went my way up mm-hmm. um, probably should have started with my head and then go <laughs> down but, but it sounds like you know. in doing that you created a performance routine that was yeah. mainly it's mostly psychological right Yeah, 100%. in terms of getting yourself and because I'm, I'm assuming that by the time you got to the end of that 
that routine you're like right I'm ready yeah you know? and I think it was and the, I think no matter what your routine ends up being that's got to be the result at the end of it mm. um, so for me it was very much like that and I tried to keep it organised the downside to that is if there is disruption then it can cause disruption to yeah. that result which mm. is I think I learned that as, a, as I went through and I got older then I learned that that was my routine but that I, there was a lot of kind of time to relax within yeah. it or I could I could skip a few steps yeah. but still be so happy you weren't necessarily OCD about it exactly yeah. yeah but that took time to learn mm-hmm. um, but ultimately it's that whatever you do you need to get to that place where exactly what you said there it's go time or now, now I'm ready I'm ready to, to put my mind to the tasks or the job or the mm-hmm. focus of the day or the focus of that next hour um, and that, that is ultimately what that routine's got to equal. Um, it's really interesting that the other thing you, you mentioned was there's no, like you didn't have a specific morning, evening, afternoon routine, but basically you're talking about planning yeah. and being prepared. Yeah. And it's funny because one of the issues I'm having at the, mo- at the moment with an athlete, it started as a nutritional issue, and what it basically come down to was a planning issue. Yeah. Was when, when she's eating on the fly or when things aren't planned, yeah. The quality is poor, and that's what's causing me to put on weight. So actually, the issue is not nutrition. The issue is planning and preparation, yeah. um, and therefore the the kind of task being okay. Let's see how many meals have you actually planned that you're eating. Yeah. So it's interesting that because I think it's something that people underestimate uh, in terms of a what I now kind of term performance habits. So yeah, you yeah. can have the technical skill, you can have the tactical skill, but if you don't have the performance habits behind it, like being able to organize yourself and organize your kit and be in the right place at the right time, ready to switch on, your nutrition, your sleep, your hydration, all that stuff that underpins your performance. Yeah. No coach wants you if you turn 10 minutes, like 10 minutes late. No. no coach wants you. doesn't matter how good you are. If you're 10 yeah. minutes late, you're no good to us. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really interesting because I think that's something that getting a balance with young graphics is hard because you don't want to be really hard on people because obviously they've got the stresses at schools mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it's not always them that's driving themselves at the age of 14, their yeah, parents. Yeah. So yeah. it's a difficult one to get the balance of. So your expectations when you're coaching now, how do you kind of put that across without being too kind of over the top? Um, that's a good question. I think your point about coachability, that for me is the most important thing. Um, and kind of that report into the line. Mm-hmm. So then as a coach now, if, if let's say a young person reports to the line or one of the national team guys reports to the line and you can see straight away they're not ready to be coached or they're not ready to kind of take on maybe the challenges of the session or the questions that the session's going to ask of them. That's when you can then, I think through my experience and again that modern era of coaching, I can then use the other skill set that I've got, right, what's going on, right, I've turned up late, I couldn't get out of school, I've yeah. got loads of homework on at the minute, um, I've not eaten yet or I've not eaten since lunch, I've not had time, well you have had time but like you said there, you've not planned, you've not organised your space and your time. Yeah. to achieve that mm-hmm. so um, for me is if if they arrive if they arrive ready to be coached and coachable um, and like I said to answer the questions of the session then you can push on with the plan mm-hmm. it's that finding out um, kind of where are you at what's happened to the and then if it is if it is something where I think they could have managed it better yeah um, often I think the best thing to do working with the within that kind of within the youth game or let's say somebody because experience is also a funny word like you can be experienced at the age of 17 you could have mm. played a hundred times for your national team yeah so that idea maybe experience is the first time you bump into something or into a problem so if i talk about lack of experience it just might be that the first time let's say a youth athlete is bumped into the issue of balance in school mm. so i would probably 
err on the side of right this is volleyball this is a volleyball slot for the next two hours you've turned up you're stressed out you've not got your homework done you're clearly not going to get anything out of this session so you're going to spend two hours of this time getting that right so you can sit with another member of staff you can sit in the gym because that's going to make you a better volleyball player if you learn the trick to that mm. and if this is the time that you've given me because you've organised your diary to work on volleyball for these next two hours then working on your volleyball might look like organising your calendar for the next three weeks yeah. or it might be getting that bit of homework done so that the next session or for the last hour of today's session you're good and you're on it and you're yeah. coachable that makes sense doesn't it because if you focus mentally somewhere else you're still going to be rubbish Yeah, and, and actually that two hours mm. You know, like you say, if you sacrifice one hour to work on scheduling and I'm now relaxed and focused on yeah. the last hour, I'll get more out of it than two hours where I'm unfocused. Yeah, I mean, I quite like the. I've tried to look at some of the hierarchy of needs for kind of coaching and whether that's club or national team. There's that idea of from sport and from your session or from you need to get that, you need to feel wanted, you need to get yeah. gratification, mm-hmm. you need to feel. Um, maybe loved is the wrong term but you need to feel that welcome of a, of a group yeah. and that kind of shared we, we take on your problems as much as we take on your successes yeah. so you're not um, just an athlete yeah exactly. I think it's I think it's just you need to get back to a little bit of a human level mm-hmm. um, and then if they're not good enough the sport is going to tell you they're not good enough yeah. like you're not going to have to do that as a coach mm-hmm. in, in my belief there's yeah. going to be so, and then how you get them to realise that whether it's through stats through video analysis through playing other teams and that awkward moment of I've just been beaten on the flank for the last hour yeah. and why is that? Potentially you're maybe we're not going to make it like you've, you're doing everything in the gym we're, we're pushing every boundary we can but maybe physically you're not going to do that so maybe we look at another position maybe we look at another level yeah. so I think that's the beauty of sport for me is sport's going to tell you when you're not good enough mm-hmm. or when you're done um, the job until then is to keep happy and to keep pushing and to keep accepting challenges and, and failures mm. um, but r- the role of a coach in that um, is just to support that process mm. um, so uh, another question from Alex Mackley was ad- advice on pushing through barriers so mm-hmm. what uh, kind of I guess experience can you draw upon in your career where you came up against a barrier and you're pushing through it what kind of strategies or yeah. uh, around? I think the probably the overarching because the barriers are going to come in different times um, different social spaces so the barrier might be with something to do with your personal life it might be a barrier within a certain department of your sport or a technical or a tactical or a physical or and like there's so many different mm-hmm. um, areas where that can come but the big thing for me was um, if you can identify them before they come that's going to be a big help yeah. um, and then the other thing is to, to get out of the mindset where it's your barrier to deal with and you alone so the first thing you should be doing is seeking help or seeking another another kind of person to to look at that with you um so whether it's uh, an older member of the team whether it's the assistant coach whether it's a member of the staff whether it's a parent a carer a grandparent a neighbor it doesn't matter um sharing what you're trying to achieve like sharing that goal with other people like this is what i want to do this is where i want to get to that immediately will recruit people to support you. So yeah. whether it means that granny gives you an extra tenner at Christmas because you know you're trying to get that bit of kit or you've yeah. got that trip to go on, mm-hmm. that's recruiting support and that's potentially knocking down a barrier. Mm. Um, if it's telling the school, then that could be a support from maybe a laptop or it could be support for a bit of extra time on homework or mm-hmm. something like that. So it's 
for me, no matter what the problem, often if, if I've had an issue, the solution has always come from support with somebody else. Mm. I could pretty much put my hand on my heart and say there's never been a barrier where I've just dealt with it on my own. Mm. I've either suffered with a barrier for so long, somebody stepped in and they've had to help, or I've quickly realized, right, something's gonna happen that's maybe gonna stop me two or three months or two or three moves down the line. Mm. So who's the best person to speak to now? and try and get a solution. I think the other thing with barriers is you can get in a habit of getting over them. There's that idea that, oh, nothing ever bothers that person or oh, yeah, nothing yeah. ever stops them and why is it, how is it they're always doing it? It's, it's setting that mentality that it is just a barrier. Yeah. Like, I am going to get through it. I will get around it, over it, under it, and I'm going to recruit people to help me do that. Mm. Um, and I think once you get in the mode of doing things, um, and get over a few then eventually the big ones look as small as the small ones because mm. well, I've done this before I've, I've suffered a little bit or I've had a bit of a, a kind of a rocky patch or um, and, I, and I've come through it and I, yeah. and I will get through it um, but that support network is vital I think probably this try and give a bit of analogy somebody's told me it's like moving a chair so I was kind of like the first time I was like what do you mean moving a chair it's like well you kind of you've sat in your chair and you're you're facing a certain way or you you've got a certain outlook to move it or to turn it to look at another outlook or another something else to look at you're gonna have to rock it you're gonna have to go up maybe from four feet up to one to twist it to turn it so there's that moment where it's supposed to be uneasy mm-hmm. to move and it's supposed to be uneasy to make a change um and that's maybe where it links into the idea of a barrier it is just then a case of changing a bit of direction or finding a solution to get over under or around and it is going to feel uncomfortable yeah. but eventually you're going to get it back down you're going to have a better view you're going to have all of that the change that comes with it mm. it's really interesting you're kind of talking about looking outside yourself because I think it was reading a book recently I think it was High Performance Habits by Brendan Bashar talking about developing influence and actually his kind of suggestion was one of the primary ways you can develop influence is by asking other people to do to do, a, to do you a favour basically to say yeah. look I need your help yeah. because actually people respect that and people come on board and then it's not just your mission it becomes yeah. their mission as well so you get more stakeholders in what you're yeah. trying to do which is exactly what you're saying yeah and that goes it goes to every level like probably when I was younger potentially guilty of kind of a bit too much socialising with friends or you kind of think oh well I've done all of that and mm-hmm. I deserve I yeah, deserve yeah. to go out and I've, I've said no five times I get to say yes once um, and really early on in my career I've taken that kind of right I've had enough I've done all this I'm probably fed up with something at training or I've been I've not been home for six weeks from Sheffield or whatever it might be and I've gone out with my mates um, and we were out there and it was all I'll, I'll never forget it we were out there and we were out and about and not kind of causing trouble or anything but I kind of we were in there and something happened or something got said and one of my friends turned to me he's like Ben you shouldn't be in here and you're kind of thinking like oh we're both whatever age we were and yeah. it's a strange thing for a friend of that age yeah, to kind yeah, of say but he was like you, you shouldn't be here like just get out just like what are you doing like it's that kind of thing of there I think at that time they knew kind of what I wanted to achieve and where I wanted to go and even they were reflecting on like okay we keep asking Ben and we know he doesn't turn up but we'll give him a bit of stick for it but then if he actually comes we didn't expect him to come because are you supposed to be doing this or yeah. if you're you're telling us you're serious about it then this isn't a place where you're serious about what you're talking about mm. so uh, it was that was really kind of and that shows you the different levels you can get at you could get it from a teacher and it feels like a bit of a mm. chore or here we go again like the same message but to get it to, from one of your mates 
um, and for them to identify look if you want to move in those circles or if you want to achieve that then you're not going to be in this one for a bit and kind of that's fine with us mm. but just get lost like, <laughs> like yeah. we're not going to not be your friends but I'm telling you as a, as a mate this isn't what you should be doing mm. um, and that, that you know, it's, it's always stuck with me um, and I say it wasn't anything kind of even that special but you for a moment you thought like no he's absolutely right like yeah. what, what am I doing or why did I think they needed me to be here or yeah. why did I put that importance on it when they didn't like they just yeah that's interesting talking about being selective with kind of social stuff because yeah. uh, you know a few weeks back we were having a meeting about kind of culture within the academy and one of the players kind of talked about sacrifice mm-hmm. and one of the academy managers said I disagree I don't think it's a sacrifice yeah. so in your in your mindset at that point in time was it a sacrifice for you to not go out with your mates or were you trading that for something better in your mind yeah I think um, I'd talk about choices yeah um, and I think potentially at the time I would have called it a sacrifice because that's what everybody else was calling it mm-hmm. um, like, I, I kind of, it sounds really like I'm always talking another language but once I started down that kind of path and that this is what I want to do that's where I want to go the direction I wanted to take you start to realise that, and I don't mean this in a, in a bad way, but like normal people, mm. they would call that a sacrifice. Yeah. However, in the world I wanted to be in, in the, the language that they talk, that's just the choice. It's just what's like, required. Yeah, you're not going to get given a badge for taking that choice. You're yeah. going to get, that's just the minimum operating standard. Yeah. So that, I think at the time, I think I would have in my brain, because everybody around me was calling that a sacrifice, then you'd probably say the same thing. But I quickly realised when I started to move into that, the kind of higher ends of, of sport and that, that world, and especially professional sport, is they were just choices. And they were, they were mm. habits that, kind of, that you had to make. So if that meant missing weddings, funerals, birthdays, it wasn't a sacrifice, it was a choice. If you yeah. want to be here, if you want to achieve this, if you want to be a part of this kind of group that are going in this direction, these are the choices you need to make. Yeah. You turn up at this time on this date, to do this yeah that then you can't then say oh well I'll have to sacrifice everything to be there yeah no well if you think it's a sacrifice just don't come don't do mm. um, you're going to either choose and we'll see you there or you're going to choose and you're not going to be there yeah um, and I, to be honest I quite like that that kind of division um, it's not to say there isn't compromise and there's, there should be um, but again you can choose for compromise am I going to take this issue to head coach look I've got an exam yeah. on that day I can't shift it I've tried I've spoken to head teacher I've spoken to department head we've tried with the examining board no coach is then going to say oh, well you've made your choice you're done yeah. um, that's where compromise can come in like okay this time I'll let us speak to them um, I had that issue when I played um, for England I had to sit one of my exams in the Czech Republic um, <laughs> as you do <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah because, because there was a clash with my yeah. levels and yet we managed to find a way um, because that I was adamant that the choice I wanted to make was playing for the senior national team in the world champs in the Czech Republic I kind of had decided that was yeah. going to be it you <laughs> could see the appeal yeah yeah so you've got kind of me very headstrong uh, 17 years old um, and then with the, the kind of the support I got from my school at the time the compromise came that okay we can go however I remember the national team needs to go with you to the embassy there's an invigilator in there that can work with you like this is what we need to do and, and we managed to find a way to keep that choice mm. within some compromise. Mm. Interesting. So uh, this next question comes from Steve Kernan, who's actually the head of Academy Sports Science at Hibs. 
uh, here in Edinburgh. Yeah. So at what age did you start uh, strength conditioning and what was the kind of coach buying in the culture in, vo- in volleyball at that point in time? Yeah. Um, so for me, probably the first time I started doing um, S&C, um, like strength and conditioning kind of way, it was probably when I was, I'm trying to think back, probably when I was like 13, especially with athletics. Yeah. Um, so we do a, maybe a little bit of ladder work and a little bit of kind of hurdle work at football, um, but nothing too prescript and nothing looking back obviously now having experienced that it was almost like a chuck up the ladders yeah yeah we've seen it done like let's do it whereas athletics was a bit a little bit higher end stuff i did the high jump i did long distance um so we did specific nights where we were working on kind of either the kind of plyometric side of it or we were working on some of the speed stuff or um so that was probably the first and then i actually took on um kind of quite a bit of, of it myself um, so I went out and I bought um, well I bought <laughs> mum and dad bought uh, for like, like Christmas they got me like a road bike yeah. um, because I knew I needed to do more endurance stuff um, so I'd go out on my road bike I'd go running um, in the garage and I eventually converted that into a gym so I went out on the newspaper at the time obviously it'd be everything would be gum tree now but it was a newspaper um, I managed to get like a bench and a set of York yeah. like whatever it was um, and then through volleyball probably when I was 15 or 16 we started to get kind of body weight um, programs um, and especially I think the one beauty of volleyball was that they were tending to get tall teenagers like I said at the start of this like those moments where you're having a month where you're just out of your own body you mm-hmm. just can't keep it in like can't control it um, I think I grew something like 10 centimetres in one summer so you can imagine like kind of what yeah. that affects your body with so we were getting a lot of work kind of body weight things like skipping um, little bits of, of kind of hurdle work um, and then kind of from there kind of started my appetite with looking at right what would a volleyballer do or what kind of um, kind of muscle groups would I work on so I think probably probably 13 was probably the first time I started to get more of a mm-hmm. I got coached yeah. on, on kind of physical stuff and then probably 14 15 and 16 I had coaches from volleyball that were starting to introduce specific things around shoulder stability around core strength around um, landing so like a, like kind of how I was landing and using my legs mm-hmm. um, and then personally I kind of took on and I enjoyed that I've always enjoyed that working hard mm-hmm. so I took on the right I'm going to make sure I've done an hour on the bike going around where I lived and then I'll come straight off the bike and I'll go for a run and then I'll so that side of it the kind of um, the real basic just pushing my engine mm-hmm. I kind of took that on um, and then the rest of it I kind of started getting prescribed I probably started getting Olympic lifts um, when I was probably about 17 um, we had a really good coach with the senior England team um, who'd done a lot of work in the past and a lot of research and a lot of kind of studying into um, that physical training side of it I think that was anomaly at the time there wasn't any other national team coach that was going to the depth and the level that he was um, and that was probably my first real taste of doing S&C mm-hmm. so we did Olympic lifts and they taught me with the broomsticks and I kind of shadowed the older guys and um, yeah that was a that was a huge kind of eye opener for me and then at 18 like the world kind of completely opened when I turned pro we had a full time S&C coach we had full time physio we had full time head and assistant coach we mm-hmm. also worked with the Spanish national team um, they, they kind of they weren't impressed with my physical state when I got there because normally I would have been doing 
what they gave me at 18 probably when I was 13 or 14 right, yeah. it would have been drip drip fed up until then so at 18 I kind of arrived in the professional scene very much an immature um, kind of volleyball specimen so both physically for what I could have been doing mm-hmm. um, in that kind of like maturation phase or, or kind of whatever you call it um, but then also kind of through the, the little kind of steps I'd been taking like something within the warm up like if I'd been Spanish then I would have played for probably within the junior leagues I'd have had a junior club mm-hmm. I'd have had um, kind of all kinds of work linked into like a 10 minute part of the warm up but you do that 10 minutes four times a week what 40 times a year like it's, yeah. it soon adds up and then you're, you're just a completely looking different looking animal kind of come the age of 17, 18 which mm-hmm. even as an English um, player you, you notice that when we went away and we played the Europeans not that they looked more physical but in a lot of ways they just did but it was because they were doing that specific kind of body work or prevention and kind of movement mm-hmm. and it was just that drip feed within their basic volleyball at a club level at a regional level at a national team level that it just changed their characteristics mm-hmm. um, so do you think looking back now were you an early developer a late developer somewhere in the middle and Um, just chat a little bit about that experience of that kind of adolescent awkwardness of rapid growth yeah Um, I'd probably say I was something in the middle Mm -hmm. um, because I was always above average in height Um, but then like I said I had a massive growth spurt like one summer it was it was Kind of ridiculous. What sort of age were you in there? I think I was thirteen or fourteen. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I say I, I think I would sit in the middle. Um, yeah, I mean it was it was tough. Like I was always I'd always had that that attitude of just getting stuck in. Mm-hmm. Um, the school where I was at, we were not like national champions or anything. So you, I couldn't look around and think, oh, I'm, I'm completely slid off yeah. the kind of performance radar in any of these sports. Yeah. I was kind of just consistently average at most things. Um, and then when I was having a physical dip, because I, I had that self, I think self-confidence, I would say. It wasn't real big and exuberant, but mm-hmm. I did believe in myself. I kind of, I'd bet on myself to, to be there the longest, because I, like right. I said to you, I like that hard work yeah, aspect. Like, swing ball mentality. Yeah, if you say hold on, I'm pretty sure I'd be the last one, yeah. or the, the last one standing, but it wouldn't be out of skill or out yeah. of natural ability. Just it would great. just be out of, yeah, holding on for the longest. Um, so yeah, I think it was it was awkward and it was tough. I think probably the the bit that started to frustrate me is nothing I did kind of even a little bit better at was a priority for the school or was a priority in the right. sporting landscape. And I definitely had a bit of a battle with that kind of through my teenage years. A bit of a chip um, on the shoulder. Yeah, probably yeah. Um, and I think I don't even know if it was probably more of a more of a kind of like a didn't. I don't even I'm not even call it a chip. It was definitely it was outward. It yeah. wasn't something I felt sorry yeah, for. Yeah. It was a why don't you put more priority on other sports? Yeah. Like I wouldn't call it a chip. It was more of a, a hammer that I like to carry about <laughs> and kind of bash down a couple of yeah. um yeah, like why isn't something else a priority or why isn't why aren't we offering kind of different things? Um and even in small ways like my I did like a leadership course at, at school and and like my GCSE PE and I did a A level PE. And the level that I could operate at, because I'd experienced national team mm-hmm. at the age of 16 and 17, was mm-hmm. completely different to my peers. And yet everyone's like, oh, wow, it's amazing that you know that. It's kind of like, well, I know it because I've been, this this yeah. opportunity opened up and I, I was brave enough to take it. And I've, I've had a lot of support from my family to get there. And 
but that shouldn't be that shouldn't be unusual or uncommon like mm. there could have been another 15 or 20 kids at my school that could have accessed national team in other sports but because we did football rugby league cricket and athletics yeah. how was anybody ever going to yeah, the percentages for getting to a professional or national team academy in football very low rugby league in Hull okay there's two teams but it's still you're going to have mm. to be good at your age group to kind of get even close to seeing what goes on in that world the same and similar for cricket um, and athletics like the mm. standards for um, national schools they're high and they're, they're high for a good reason but it caps the number of people yeah. that can access it where something like volleyball it was easier to get into the national team and there was less people that played um, but that allowed me access to a sporting landscape that was aspiring to be professional and aspiring to be mm. at a, a national team um, level so, and I was getting that education um, so yeah I think it was tough <clears throat> it was tough as a teenager frustrating is probably the right word when like I said what you do isn't seen as kind of Good as much or, or in your head you're thinking that um, but yeah I think it was yeah just that feeling of if we could just open up a little bit more or have um, a bit more of a system where we look at maybe attributes or skill sets or that even that coachability like if you've got somebody that's okay maybe not physically strong or they're not physically talented at that time or technically talented but they've got that coachability that should be an absolute kind of red flag for a right we're going to throw everything at you yeah because just not, try something until yeah you find because eventually thing. you'll find it and with yeah. those skill sets you're going to go mm. to the moon and back um whereas i think that and i even now i'm guilty of it as a coach the first instance sport tells you volleyball tells us right we'd like this type of profile yeah. or we'd like this so if you see it you get excited or you yeah, think yeah. oh there you go and then if you start working with that young person they're not coachable they're not committed um, they're not prepared to try and learn then it's a waste yeah. um, whereas you could have easily just kind of blinkered yourself to that other person that was in the room that was hanging on every word pushing every second of every drill maybe doesn't fit what the sport's looking for the, the kind of doesn't have the physical attributes to answer the questions that the sport are putting forward but you've missed them mm. and then they go where like yeah. back into the cycle of school sport um or just kind of back completely off the radar, disenfranchised, totally knocked, and yeah. you've lost somebody to, to sport as a whole. Mm. Um. So, um, thinking about your career, this is, I'm going to make this double-pronged question. This is from Mark Keyes, who uh, is the online strength coach. So, who was the most influential SNC coach of your playing career and why? And then I'm also going to say, what about from a technical perspective, who was the most influential and why? Um, SNC coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, ooh. So, probably the, my first my first thought goes to one of the Dutch um, SNC coaches we got a guy called Hein McNack um, so Hein was previously an athlete himself um, and then he, he then kind of subsequently ended up working in volleyball basketball athletics um, he's based out in Holland now works with the Belgian national team um, he was probably I think the reason why he was influential as a, as a coach and I mean a coach in general he understood he understood our sport which was a huge thing for for me personally to have somebody that was working on the okay we they've given him the physical side of it to deal with and yet he could talk how that physical side linked to the technical the tactical the mental the emotional mm-hmm. he could he could link everything um and he had he had that kind of 
player management um, that I really respect out of a coach. So coach of whatever didn't really matter. He knew how to work with people, um, which was a real, as captain, I would kind of, I maybe I noticed it a little bit more or he could do things that would influence my role as a captain. Like he could appease people, he could push them on, he could give me a bit of a heads up. And it was almost that feeling that we could work together on things. Um, so I think, I think it was it was some of those skills that I liked the most. But his ability to link what he was doing for the for the kind of piece mm-hmm. of the pie that he was responsible for, and how that linked to all the other parts that was that was massive. Um, and he also gave me a lot of a lot of support for the off court stuff. Um, I think probably one of the best things he kind of ever said. He would often have like discussions, or we'd be with each other at camps or in the hotels. Um, but I was playing professionally in Holland at the time and he just turned up to watch like the cup finals so he was there you knew he was there he wasn't working with the national team at the time but it meant a lot to have somebody okay, he lived in Holland but still as a player you're kind of thinking he didn't have to come mm. and he didn't have to make the effort but he always did um, and, he, and he kind of he kind of made a point this was the, the kind of the season before the Olympics and, and he'd said about walking slow so you're thinking right this is the most stupid thing an SNC coach has ever said like you're telling me to do something slow like, like we're a dynamic sport um, but he just all he meant was kind of all of the moments around playing he, he basically just said just soak it all up and it wasn't something I expected from him mm-hmm. and it definitely wasn't part of his remit or part of his piece of the pie or whatever yeah. I could apportion it um, but I think it was that that just genuine he was genuinely committed to us as players but also as people so there was a there was a big thing there where you kind of as, a, as an athlete you got blinkered down and you got you knuckled in and you you focused on the 1% or this part that part and the one thing that nobody ever talked to us about was just enjoying it mm. like be 100% in and be 100% out so if you get to walk out in front of five, six, fifteen thousand people just walk a little bit slower have a look about like who do you see yeah, like so what's good. going on like because that'll be as much as of what you remember and you'll talk about afterwards yeah as that the, the bits in it mm-hmm. um i think the other probably snc coach um it's probably quite terrible because i can't remember his full name um but it was working in tenerife so he'd also worked with the uh, cuban athletics team um, and he brought an absolute complete different dimension to what i thought was snc for volleyball um, we did a lot of plyometric work with him. We did a lot of, um, yeah, I would, I would say kind of different stuff in the gym. Um, he wasn't afraid to put load on the guys as well, um, which personally I can, it, it helped me through certain injuries and um, especially with my, my jump height, which is a, was a big thing um, for most volleyball players because it's a big part of everything yeah, we do. And dive like that, yeah, you? I jump set, I block, I jump serve. Like so, it's it's a real big part of the game. It was part for me, um, and I found the way that he managed the balance, like the periodization throughout the season, um, and also the the lifting and then the the plyo, like kind of plyometric work, and then also to wrap around the kind of rehab prehab. So I've never walked away from a, a season thinking my knees feel amazing, my back feels strong, my shoulders feel good, and I've. I've also hit all of the other targets. My jump has gone up. Mm-hmm. Like I feel strong. I feel good within all of the kind of different ranges, and almost it just felt like he was a bit of a magician. Like he'd managed to put everything in at the right times yeah. and kind of pushed you through maybe some of the 
periods where you thought oh, this just isn't going to pay off or I'm feeling slow I'm feeling a bit lethargic like when are we, when is this going to go mm-hmm. and kind of kick on and he, yeah you, we were peaked at the end of the season and coming off out of a club I actually felt good like I wasn't going to the national team kind of a bit worn out and a mm-hmm. bit tired which was often the case because the clubs were getting us ready to peak for the end of the yeah. season they didn't really care for the next two or three months because you could have just slept or hibernated they didn't yeah. really care Um. So you were, I was often finding that at the end of a lot of seasons, you'd have a bit of a dip again because your body was breaking down because maybe essence had dropped off a little bit or it had gone to like a maintenance kind of phase or you're doing a couple of sessions just to peak for the playoffs or the five or six matches you had left. Mm-hmm. And then you'd come out of the back of that feeling really rough. And then you'd, your national team, S&C coach, would have to then pick it up to then get you back peak from maybe middle of the summer. Um, so yeah, that... I'll try and find you his name. That's mm. bad. I've got all of his all of his sessions. I've still kept yeah, every session. So what about from a technical point of view? So te- most influential technical coach in yeah. your in your cross career. So it could have been really early on or late yeah. or um it probably been Ian. Um Ian Legrand. I don't even know if you he's probably not technically an S and C coach. Um so as a coach, as far as he was the volleyball coach, he'd studied and he'd kind of done C P D on S and C, but he probably laid along with probably some of the other senior players in the English team at the time like I say 17 it was kind of right Ben you are paired up with the kind of the best lifters in the gym by the best lifters I don't mean the heaviest it was yeah. kind of like the, the good form the um, like the right technique and he's like you basically buddied up with them so I just I followed them you kind of start on a broomstick then you get a bar then you mm-hmm. get some, maybe some fives or some tens on um, but that really cemented probably my relationship with the technical side of lifting. Um, the interesting thing eventually down the line was um, kind of in my career, you had some S&C coaches from a, very much coming from a volleyball background mm-hmm. where they weren't interested. They were interested more in a kind of grip it and lift it. Yeah. Kind of, this is a functional move for volleyball. Or this yeah. is a, a move that's going to increase. So that you'd go to some clubs and you would just cringe at the technique that the players had. And yet the coach was happy, and yes, yeah. it could be because they were lifting a certain amount. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas for me, kind of starting with Ian and the national team in England, it was I wanted, I wouldn't accept that, and I wouldn't put my body in that position yeah. because yeah, mm-hmm. I don't care what you think. Like I want to move well and functionally, and okay, if I end up lifting this, brilliant, and if not, then unlucky that that's yeah. my limit. Like, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that'll probably be it. Uh, so last two questions, and since retiring as an athlete. Could you provide a bit of an outline of your coaching kind of career and progression? And I guess maybe even a bit of an idea of where you want to go in the future. And that's from Adrian yeah. Cloud. Nice. Um, yeah, so I, I'd been coaching alongside my professional career. Um, it was often a way of making a bit of extra money. So the clubs you'd go to, if you took a junior team, if you took a youth team, they could pay you um, like a wage for some coaching hours. Um, and then I also found it was a good way of linking in with the club. So I could learn the language, I could get to know the kids, the parents, the people mm-hmm. that were coming to watch um, our team play essentially. So in my, probably my first year at 18, um, I did like clinics. So the pro team would get sent to local schools and yep. we'd run stuff. So that was a startup. And then in Sweden, in Holland, in Belgium, um, in all of those countries I had a team so uh, in Holland was probably the coolest one so that was my second year as a, my third year as a pro um, I took an under 13 so you were 21 at this point yeah you? yeah 10, 21 when I was in Holland yeah um, yeah I took I took an under 13 girls team and I had the over 50s 
uh, <laughs> team for the club, right? You laugh. Like, this team had three Olympic medalists. Listen, eh? And they were like 60, 70 years and old. And you're coaching them at 21. Yeah, I was coaching them. It was brilliant. But they had like their own little sports hall. It was called the Bancrafts. It had like a bar at the back, this little teeny weeny rubbish yeah. hall. But I'd go there on like a Thursday night, wherever it was, to coach the guys and the girls. It was a mixed team. Um, to coach them for like an hour and a half. Um, and it got maybe halfway through the season and bless her, like the one of the matriarchs of the team just kind of took me to one side. She's like, Ben, you're not pushing us hard enough. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I, I'm just like repeating whatever sessions we do with yeah. our coach and learning that way, like from yeah, yeah. some of the experience I've had with other coaches and then trying to put it onto the court in my own way. Um, but they weren't satisfied. It wasn't pushing them <laughs> enough, it wasn't challenging. So that was a big learning curve um, for me as a coach is like not just to repeat what I know, yeah. but to then make it fit to the group I'm working with. Mm-hmm. Um, so safe, safe to say I made it harder and they kind of came out broke and after one session loved it, like brilliant, like that's the new standard for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I started taking my coaching more seriously in probably my last year in Holland. Um, <clears throat> with the club there, they had one of the, like, the regional national like, centres. So I was assistant coach um, for like, the boys' academy team. Um, the head coach, again Dutch, I think he had a silver medal uh, from one of the Olympics, Joost. So I worked with him <clears throat> and with the boys for the season alongside playing for the club. Um, and essentially the club identified that I could do my coaching qualifications. So in Holland you have five levels. Um, so the, like the Dutch Federation would accept me jumping in at level three because right. of my experience yeah. and my coaching hours. Um, and they actually had one of the tutors based at the club. So I worked with Roy and alongside coaching the academy and, and basically doing some hours with a, a team outside of mine. They, they got me through like my level three, which took a full year. Um, it was pretty tough. It was about 180 page like assignment. It was year planning. It was mm. um, player analysis. It was kind of really high end stuff. Uh, and I just managed to scrape through my, uh, like my practical test. So you had a practical test in a training environment and then you had a practical test in a match environment. Um, it was like the end of season game for the club that I'd been helping out with and they'd basically let me head coach to do my assessment assessment. So we just needed like we just needed two sets to finish the season or finish yeah. the league. It ended up being a like a, a game that was tied at two all, so we right. got to a fifth set. Um, <laughs> ended up being a thriller. Yeah, no, it was brilliant. Um and they had we had a young guy on the bench. The team had wanted him in, so I'd managed like my tactics to get him in every now and again. And then we'd agreed as a team, if we went to a fifth set, we won our two sets, so we'd give this young guy a run out. Um, now he plays the same position as me as a setter, so you always have a bit of a kind of a yeah, soft yeah. spot for protecting um, the experience of a player, especially a young player. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's gone in and, he, and he's, got, he's got call for a technical fault, a double touch. So you kind of, as coach, you're behind your little line where you're allowed in, you're yeah. keeping your call, not talking to the officials official calls on, on him again and I kind of give a little bit of a look to the official because I'm really disagreeing and so is everybody else in the gym but I think now I'm getting assessed he calls him a third time and I lose it I kind of I, I yeah. go up to the I go up to the referee um, and I basically I demand to be explained why he's been called for a double so there's a disruption in the game technically I shouldn't speak to the officials yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've kind of broken protocol so then after the game, I totally kind of just did it on natural instinct. Yeah. Like, I really disagreed with the call. I wasn't disrespectful to the ref, but I overstepped the mark and I shouldn't have asked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then afterwards, I'm getting assessed by Roy, who's probably now a good friend. Um, and he's kind of, right, okay, yeah, so everything was good. 
can you explain to me why you broke the rules and you spoke to refs? I'm thinking that what am I going to say? Like yeah, this yeah. is going to be pass or fail. So I've kind of I said, oh, well, it was a young player on the court. I felt he needed some protection. I felt it was a yeah. a sure it was a sure to him that I supported him. It recruited the rest of the players to support yeah. him. Yeah, so psychological master. Yes, <laughs> I, I said I said it was just a mechanism to show support in yeah. a respectful way. And I said, okay, I risked getting in trouble for it. Yeah. But the risk and reward versus protecting. Yeah. And he kind of he was like, right, I'll stop you there, Ben. He's like, that's the right answer. That's absolutely fine. You've passed. And I was just like, <laughs> sat there, kind of sweating, thinking I've blown it all. And, but um, yeah, and then from there, when I came back to the UK, um, I took a job um, with a school down south. Part of the role, part of the job would be to coach and to kind of support um, players there. I was also lucky that the staff that were working down there, very high level. So I knew I was in an environment where I could learn as a coach and mm-hmm. kind of keep that progression on. Because one thing that I learned from Roy um, and one thing that the, the Olympics taught me was um, that idea of legacy gets bounded around a lot. Yeah. Um, it really does. And being captain of the British team and being in front of the cameras and interviewed and I found myself probably saying it more than anybody else. Um, but after the games was, was finished, I quickly realised there wasn't going to be a big pot of money. There wasn't going to be a big mm. strategic plan. There wasn't going to be uh, somebody employed to deal with it. Legacy just existed with those people that were involved yeah. or those people that were influenced by it. So for me, I kind of took that on. A part of my legacy would be to pass on that education and also probably give respect to all of the coaches that I'd worked with that had passed on that information to me. So I was quite lucky in my career. I often made choices for teams based on head coach. Mm-hmm. So I never really got the chance to chase the money. Maybe I wish I had done that. <laughs> but I didn't chase the money. I chased the coaching situation. Yeah. So what was the head coach? What was their experience? So I worked with probably three three or four national team coaches at a club level. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with two or three that had been ex-setters. Another one that was an ex-middle player for the national team, which probably a big link for a volleyball itself. Um, and some of the conversations that I would I was I would get with them over a coffee or yeah. sat on the bus like I was spoiled throughout my career for access to little tips or tricks or mm-hmm. kind of have you thought about this or this is the reason we do this and this is how we're eventually trying to get to this um, place or so for me it would have done a real discredit to to them I think to then not go into the coaching mm-hmm. world or yeah, that educational passing on the information so. Mm. Yeah, so from, from there I coached club level and I coached kids. That's probably my probably where my experience lies the most. Um, then I, I got lucky enough to get the opportunity to go coach with the Belgian national team um, with, with Joe Banks, another British coach. So I went and worked kind of his third assistant at a world championships with their under-21s, which was a huge eye-opener. Um, I worked at club level in Hull. Um, I helped develop the Yorkshire um, programme again. Mm-hmm. I've always tried, and, and maybe it's a... Being back on the island, um, I want to place my expertise and my passion and my, my experience at the right place. Yeah. Um, and I've seen a lot of great coaches and a lot of great passionate people end up in the wrong position and then burn out. Yeah. Um, and I kind of recognise that probably about two years being back on the island is I'd felt I'd placed myself in the wrong bit. Yeah. Um, so now if I'm looking at my coach and I'm far more selective with who I work with and what I work with mm-hmm. because my plan is to stay in coaching for a long time um, if it's going to be as a volunteer on the island then brilliant I want to raise the level I want to lift mm-hmm. kind of volleyball with everybody else on the island that's trying to do that at the time um, 
but I needed to make sure that I'm maybe a bit more mobile so I can work with different groups. I can do coaching CPD, I can uh, mentor and work with other coaches. The risk I think for me was that if I get locked in with a team or I get locked in with a program, yeah, maybe that would mean that other people wouldn't listen to me. Or you're just yeah. saying that because you're this coach yeah. or you can't work with us because you're working with them. It's like, yeah. I'm very much uh, all of everything I know about volleyball is somebody else's information. It, yeah. it's, it's really not mine to no own or possess. No, there are no secrets. There is nothing revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've been conscious um, to kind of do that. So at the moment within my role within the Scottish volleyball, I get really the privilege of working with mm. boys and girls from kind of 15 all the way up to the senior national teams. Uh, I'm an assistant coach with the English national team with Simon Loftus. Uh, I still keep contact with my club down south in Hull. I still work with every club nationally in Scotland. Um, and I've been really lucky to have the support of the office and the kind mm. of volleyball in public in Scotland especially to be free and for them to get to realise that I'm, not, I'm really not motivated by power or possession. It's, it's, I've got a lot of stuff that I could share and I could mm. help with. Um, so that's nice. kind of where I'm at. So uh, that's pretty much a wrap for today, Ben. So yeah. if people want to kind of follow you on social media, mm-hmm. keep, keep tabs on what you're doing, where yeah. can they find you? Uh, so I'm on Twitter, so benpipes at me. Oh, me.com, I know that one. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm on Twitter, so just ben underscore pipes. Yep. And I'm on Instagram as well. Cool. Um, same, same handle, so you can find me on there. Scottish Brilliant. Volleyball, I always follow them and see what we're doing mm-hmm. as well. Brilliant, thanks very much. Well, Appreciate no, it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Athletic Evolution podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and comments, so please feel free to leave us a review in the voice messages section on the Spotify link. You can also follow us on social media, on Twitter using the handle at AthleticEvoUK, on Instagram at AthleticEvoUK, and via our website www.athleticevolution.co.uk. Thanks for listening and see you next time.